Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, coverage of the Supreme Court and abortion. So, as we all now know, in early May, Politico broke a scoop on the Supreme Court that the court had decided to overturn Roe versus Wade and actually published a draft decision and an opinion that laid out the, the reasoning for that. It was the biggest scoop on the biggest story on the Supreme Court beat. And as we were thinking about this, we immediately thought the person that we want to hear from on this is Nina Totenberg. Nina has been covering the Supreme Court for NPR for five decades and has a ton of thought about what this means for the court, what it says about the country, and how both are going to move forward now with this in the background. Nina, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Um, you, you, we were talking just before we started this, and, and you told me something that I find fascinating, which is that this is the one scoop that you're sort of glad that you didn't have. Is that right? Is that yeah, I would say it's the only time in my life that I have been scooped on my beat and not been sorry. <laughs> Because I would have been terribly stuck. I mean, my obligation is to inform the public. And if I could get this, somebody else would get this. And, you know, people don't leak a document like this without a purpose. And first thing you wonder is whether, I think there are indications that it, it, it did not come directly to Josh Gerstein, who is a very good reporter on the beat and wrote, as I understand it, all the stories. There's another reporter whose name is on there. And he doesn't ever cover the court. So he, mm -hmm. he either somehow got it independently or somebody sent it to him blind. Mm -hmm. And you would have been stuck in what way? Well, the first thing you have to do, of course, is verify it, and that's a lot of work. And we have no idea when they when Politico got this. But they had a lot of corroborating evidence. And when you look at it, you know that it is the most amazing fake or it's real. I mean, it is it, between the footnotes and the tone. and the, it, it, I would have been amazed if I had seen this and it wasn't real. Mm -hmm. But you still have to make sure of that and corroborate the fact that it's authentic. That takes time and, to some degree, enormous amount of shoe leather and luck. So that's number one. And number two is I cover this institution. I have covered this institution basically on and off for almost 50 years, maybe more. I'm not, I'm, let me count. Um, I started in 69. More than 50 years. Right. So I've covered this institution for more than 50 years. And like the others that cover the court, I mean, we're a, a, certainly a competitive bunch, but we're, it, it's a stately beat in the sense that what you're really covering is an enormous amount of substance. There is some personality, some, you know, occasionally you'll see people come go at odds, but what you're covering is what's happening at the court, and that's what you see in the arguments and what you see in the opinions. 
And there are very good reasons for keeping the deliberation secret, and this is a, a very good example of them. I don't know whether this will be the final product. Um, I suspect that even if it is, it will have been modified to some extent, and some of those modifications may be significant. But in any event, it it makes the court not only look political and it, they're acting like polit- people up there are acting like politicians. They're leaking stuff. Mm-hmm. And you don't know whether it was a clerk or a bunch of clerks or uh, actually a justice who aided and abetted this or even a spouse, God forbid. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we all, all of us who cover the court, have had a certain kind of respect for the court as an institution. And we're like everybody else. It's eroded now. And I don't know what that means for covering the beat, but I would not have been thrilled to be the one who threw the first flame that set the fire. But but it's now lit. The fire is there. Um, what have you noticed um, just in your day-to-day work covering the court that's different now that this is out there? Are people more guarded? Are you? Are there people who were talking to you that are no longer talking to you, or is it the opposite? Is it is it sort of a free for all? Well, I can only speak for myself. First of all, I went on a vacation for a week after, the, not long after the leak, like thirty hours after the leak story broke, and so I everything I did, I did from afar, and I and I tried actually not to be involved because the basic story I covered, I did one appearance on a Sunday show, and that was it. Oh. Um, but. Since I've gotten back, I would say it's not changed anything. First of all, most of us aren't at the court. Yeah, uh, we're only there for on argument days, and at least until now, the court has not taken the bench to announce opinions. It just posts them online, which I think is very sad. Uh, and I hope they go back to um, being there to announce opinions. And when this opinion is announced, um, I wouldn't be surprised to see the court take the bench because I can't imagine the dissenters not wanting to follow the tradition of summarizing their dissent from the bench, which goes back for, you know, since the, you know, almost, I don't know exactly how long, but certainly more than a century. Yeah, but you've, you've described this leak as a kind of earthquake for the court. Um, and even though the the way that it's being covered now isn't isn't hasn't changed because of COVID rules, I assume that you think that there's going to be something fundamentally different about how the court operates and how it how it. I don't deals know. With, you don't know. I don't know. You know, um, <clears throat> there was a um, when Roe was announced, there was a leak the week before right. about the outcome. Uh, it didn't have the opinion or anything, and. And Roe had been before the court for two terms. It was re-argued um, first, you know, it was argued a second time, so it was there for two terms. And um, apparently, as I recall, uh, what we later learned was that at least the person who confessed to being the leaker, and it turned out there were many more people, but the person who thought it was his fault had had a, um, a promise from the reporter that he talked to about it because they were, I guess, uh, law school colleagues or something like that. And um, and he, the friend had promised him 
uh, and it was David Beckwith from Time Magazine had promised him that he wouldn't print anything until the opinion was announced. And then Chief Justice Berger delayed the opinion announcement for a week, and Time went with it, the story. Right. Um, oddly enough, it, it didn't, it wasn't the, a huge, huge, huge story because, among other things, I think uh, President Johnson died and a lot of other things conspired to put it not to be the lead story. Um, it Chief Justice Berger was terribly upset, uh, you know, wanted to take all kinds of very dire measures. But uh, Larry Hammond, the young law clerk who went to his boss, Lewis Powell, and confessed, um, and Powell just said, you know, don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you did something stupid. You didn't think you were doing something damaging to the court, mm-hmm. and we're, we'll leave it at that. Don't do it again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, learn take th- take this lesson. You, you were snookered. Um, and there are members of the court who undoubtedly feel that way. They don't want to get into a swivet about this. It is falls in the category of, I know this is a family program, it falls for them in the category of shit happens. And this is particularly bad um, shit. But yeah. It happens, and you don't want to change the nature of the institution by making it a police, you know, a police state within the court. There are people who, who would resist that on the court, and I don't know how that shakes out, and and I don't know how the chief justice feels about it. And since we're not there, and this is not a beat like other beats where you're constantly talking to law clerks and members of the court. We don't. Law so, clerks are not supposed to talk to us, really. So how do we know? I, I read in the days following the leak that Roberts, for instance, was livid. How do we know that? Oh, I think, you know, you <laughs> you can. I know him well enough. Everybody knows him well enough, and there are people. It, the word gets out. I mean, but you don't. It's not like somebody in his chambers mm-hmm. is likely to say to me, you can't imagine how bad it was. Uh-huh. Um but you could hear it from other people. The, the federal court system, the other judges know, who are mm-hmm. not on the Supreme Court, court members have friends on other courts, and that, that kind of thing gets out. Yeah. But that's not a big deal. Right. Uh, I thought he was actually pretty restrained when he talked about it. Yeah. And I guess in terms of what this means going forward for the court depends on what we learn later about the identity of the leaker, assuming we learn something, uh, assuming at some point it, it comes up. Maybe it won't. Um, you I don't in- think we're going to learn who it was. I think I read that you said you sort of gamed out the various, you know, scenarios, which we've all been talking mm-hmm. about, mm-hmm. you know, whether it was uh, a liberal person trying to upset things, a conservative person trying to lock in the decision mm-hmm. as it was outlined. Mm-hmm. Did I rec- did, Am I right in reading that you said that you sort of leaned toward the latter, that it was... I leaned toward the latter, but I'm not sure I'm right at all. Yeah. Um, you know, there was uh, Tom Goldstein from SCOTUS blog, uh, who at one point in his life was my intern, uh, <laughs> seems to have a better grip of this. And he notes that there, this, this leak came, in his view, it came in phases, so the first leak was actually to the Wall Street Journal. Yes, right. And it was onto the editorial page and um, was sort of framed as Roberts once again trying to pick off another justice to to 
screw the the conservative movement. Um, and then, uh, in response to that, in Tom's view, came a liberal clerk who was out, or liberal somebody who was outraged, and this leak got got out. Mm-hmm. Um, I could I can argue it the other way too, which is. It, the first story didn't get a lot of traction. If somebody was trying to get traction, then another way to do it was with a bigger leak. But I, I don't know. It's 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 all a, in some horrible sense a parlor game. You said it could even be a spouse, um, which I obviously went immediately to Ginny Thomas. Is that who you were referring to, or you just said in gen- you just mean in general? I think that if you were going to think of somebody, it would—that's what you would be think of. But I don't. She doesn't have access to opinions, not unless she were to go looking in, through her husband's papers. Yeah. What does this mean? You've been covering this, as you say, for a while, <laughs> um, and I mean, the, 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 these the court decisions have always been—you know—there have always been enormous controversies, and it's been—you know—these th- these these issues that they deal with are on their laps because nobody else can figure it out. Um, you know, we've had court the court sort of determine the outcome of a presidential election. So it's always been in the center of the eye. But it does strike me that this issue in this case are on a kind of different plane of that. Um, and I wonder if, if what it feels to you as somebody who now is thinking about continuing to cover this for a while, does that make it more, like, does that make you want, want to keep doing this longer? Or do you think like, oh my God, like this is going to be such a, such a wrenching thing. I, I'm just, I'm not sure that it's like the covering the court is, has Oh, I the think same it's going to be, I think it's going to be wrenching. And I've thought that since, um, three Trump appointees were added to the court. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the last one being Amy Coney Barrett just before the 2020 election. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it was very clear then to me that it was going to be wrenching. And I kept telling people that in my stories. But pardon me, but this is what I do. And it's a hell of a good story. Yeah. <laughs> it may be wrenching, but, um, you know, suck it up and report it because it's a very big and important story. Yeah. Um. What do you think is going to be the so so play this forward into um, the next election? Um, well, for the first time, Democrats will actually be somewhat mobilized. I don't know whether they'll be as mobilized as Republicans are because there's such an important part of the Republican constituency that increasingly viewed abortion as their number one and often only voting issue. Mm -hmm. And Democrats were more dispersed, and they didn't Mm -hmm. really think it was going to happen anyway. And for literally, you know, 25 or 30 years, I would do a story every election year saying, you know, this is a really big, could be a really big deal in terms of how the Supreme Court turns out. And people on the left would sort of just sort of take it for granted. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the public didn't see the court at least in their eyes, they're not looking at it every every day, going crazy. Um, it was very gradual, and that's sort of the way change at the court is was always in my in my era of covering it supposed to be. You're not supposed to have these um, wild twists and turns, but this is a very ideological court. Some people will call it a partisan court. I would call it a very 
ideologically conservative court, more conservative than any court since the late 20s and early 30s. Mm-hmm. And that's a very long time. And mm-hmm. I don't know any time in our history where we've seen such a group of ideologues on the court with a very huge agenda mm-hmm. on all manner of things, uh, everything from abortion and guns to federal regulation and the ability of uh, agencies to issue regulations and even the ability of Congress to pass laws that would allow such regulations. Mm -hmm. That's where we are, and that's a very big deal. And as big as this story is, and as much as you might think that it might, to some people, say, if you were on the court, there's a reason for gradualism. People have come to rely on rights and certain ways of doing things, and if we're going to change it, we need to change it over a very gradual period of time. This court isn't like that, and there are six very conservative members of the court, and that means they can lose one vote and still prevail. And I just don't see the likes of Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch and others uh, changing the way they have always thought that they would operate if they had the chance, and in many cases did on the lower courts to the to the largest extent that they could and still stay within the boundaries of following Supreme Court precedent. They don't have to follow Supreme Court precedent anymore, and they've made pretty clear that they're not going to. And it's going to change, I guess what I was getting at is it's going to change how, it's going to change the role of the court in our lives. I mean, I was really struck by the people going to protest at judges' houses in Washington. Um, And I got to think that that is going to only intensify, right? Well, yes and no. It's, it's, in my view, it's a, it's a politically foolish thing to do because it sort of makes you get, give great sympathy to the justices who are being um, picketed. But it's not a, it's not huge groups. I don't expect there to be huge groups because, as I said, it's not a good strategy. Um, what I do think is, given the amount of, of security at certain justices' homes, there must be an enormous number of death threats. Mm-hmm. It, this is not in reaction to a handful or two handfuls of demonstrators yelling outside some, their homes. This is much more serious because it's not just the Supreme Court police out there. Hmm. Have you? Is there a corollary to that in your experience? Have we been? Well, I remember when um, a gunshot was fired into Harry Blackman's apartment in Virginia, in suburban Virginia, and. Uh, <laughs> um, the conclusion of the FBI, I think, uh, ultimately, or whoever investigated it, was that it was a shot fired from across the river that by accident the bullet went in there. But he never believed that. Mm-hmm. He, the author of Roe, never believed that. Mm-hmm. When do you expect the Roe decision? The decision on reversing Roe, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, whether it's reversed or not and how it's reversed, um, I, th- I think it's probably at the end of the term. I don't think it'll be right away. Right. Nina, it's great to talk to you. Thanks. Thank you so much. I do this, I do this interview really 
in great sorrow for not just the court as an institution, but for all of us, that it's it's come to this. <laughs> um, that they, it is, it, there is, you know, there is, as long as there has been a set, there is, there was a center on the court, even as the center got more and more conservative, there was some sense of needing to accommodate each other. And this leak suggests that that is no longer the case. Now, I don't think there's going to be another leak like this. So it'll pass eventually, but it won't pass in their minds. And is your sorrow um, in part because of what it says about the rest of the country? No, it's really about what it says about the court. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't call it a, the court of last resort for no reason, after all. And now it's a court that is riven in the same way that the rest of the country is riven. Right. But in this case, it doesn't, in the case of abortion, and in fact, I think increasingly you'll see this in gun cases, it it really is not reflective of the majority sentiment in the country. Right. And that is very significant for the court. I mean, Justice Ginsburg, who was certainly a liberal, used to say that you can only go a certain distance unless you have the country with you. And that's why she was a little bit critical of the court moving too fast in Roe. There were other ways she thought you could have taken it in many-er steps. Many, many, not many, but many-er steps. And... um, but other than that, you know, I think she never thought you could legalize gay marriage without multiple steps and without the country having moved much more, very significantly. But that's this is the story, the way I see it, this is the story of, of pretty much all of the politics right now, which is that it's being dominated by a minority of people. Um, I mean, if you, if you look at climate change, if you look at guns, if you look at abortion... It's the same, which is that the majority of the country um, is it feels differently than the policy decisions that are being made. Well, some of that is structural, and in some sense, it is here too because there is very little center left on the court. Right. And if you, as I said, if you don't have a center, it's very hard to get to consensus. Right. If you have a center, you can think of your own workplace. Even there are cuckoo birds in terms of dealing with management and their cuckoo birds uh, in management. Um, and But if they have to get together and come up with a policy that makes sense, they are much more inspired to do that if there is somebody in the middle or roughly the middle saying, you're not going to have my support and you need my support. Right. Well, thank you again. You're welcome. So you can follow all of CJR's ongoing coverage of the court and of American politics at CGR.org. Read our daily email newsletter, The Media Today, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. 